The Linux Reality Podcast is sponsored by O'Reilly Media, spreading the knowledge of innovators through its books, online services, magazines, and conferences. Visit them today at O'Reilly.com. Welcome to Linux Reality. My name is Chess Griffin, and I'm the host of this podcast, and this is episode 71. Uh, to everybody who's listened before, welcome back, and to all the new Linux users, uh, welcome. This is a podcast that's generally aimed at the new Linux user, although we veer off into sort of advanced topics from time to time, and, and we also cover some interviews. And we have an interview today, and uh, it's with a gentleman that I think it's sort of interesting. It sort of touches on a topic I've, I've talked about from time to time, and that's the idea of Linux in schools. So I think that'll be very cool. A couple of announcements. Uh, first of all, uh, this O'Reilly uh, you know, discount code that I've mentioned, I mentioned this last week, a few people have contacted me and said they were not able to use it uh, outside of the U.S. And so I contacted the O'Reilly folks and I confirmed that unfortunately that's the case. They said they're, the, the way it's set up is just not able to, uh, to be used outside the U.S. because of the differences and taxes and rebates and discounts and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm sorry. I wish, I wish it could uh, work everywhere. I really, really do. Uh, but such is life. Uh, also wanted to mention that next week uh, I will actually be off. I'm going to be traveling at a conference, and uh, so I will not have an episode next week. I will have one the week after, and probably um, in, a, in, in a couple of weeks I'll be off again, and it may even be two weeks I'll be off. I'm not quite sure. Uh, my the, the room I use at my house, I've got all my computer equipment in, including my recording stuff. My wife and I are repainting it, and so we've got to move everything out. It's a pretty major project, uh, so I don't know how long my downtime will be. Hopefully, it'll just be a week. So there may be a week sometime in August where uh, where I won't have an episode, but I hope to sort of give everyone advance notice of that. Uh, but speaking of this conference I'm going to next week, it's not Linux-related, unfortunately, although, again, I am going to the Ohio Linux Fest at the end of September. Uh, but I've been getting a laptop ready to take with me. I have, as I mentioned last week, I talked about all my different computers. I've got a few laptops, and I'm going to take one with me. And I've got one uh, that I've been kind of, you know, sort of putting together that I'm going to take with me. It's the uh, ThinkPad T42. But um, <laughs> part of my, um, uh, well, I should back up and say I'm going to this conference alone. My wife and kids are not going with me. It's a business thing. And uh, I decided to load up some games. And I haven't played, I'm not much of a gamer, although I do have some copies of the Linux version of Quake 3. Unreal Tournament and um, Unreal Tournament 2003. I guess they're the Windows versions, but you can run them with Linux as well. And I decided to put those three games on because I really, I don't know, like I said, I don't play many games, but I really do like the first-person shooters for some reason. And I know Quake 3 and Unreal Tournament, those are old games by most people's standards. I mean, these are six, seven-year-old games or whatever. But um, anyway, I got them loaded up on this laptop, and I was playing them earlier today. And, oh, boy, those are just some fun games. <laughs> I just, you know, I wanted to have a little diversion when I was there. And I also loaded up uh, Flight Gear. I've never really played with Flight Gear, and I've heard a lot of great things about it, um, including there was some, a really interesting uh, discussion about it on the Source Trunk podcast a few uh, uh, weeks ago. And uh, some, you know, good old games, NetHack and uh, a bunch of others. So I'm 
bringing my laptop and wanted to play a bunch of games. So it should be fun. Uh, but anyway, I think that's about it. Uh, we should, you know, as I said, we've got this interview coming up. I've got some, I've got a listener tip. I've got a bunch of feedback. I actually got a ton of feedback, but I'm, you know, I'm not going to read it all this week, but I really appreciate all the great emails people have been sending me. So thanks very much. Let's check out this, uh, uh, interview first with John Rundag. Okay, well, today I'm speaking with John Rundag. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me, Chess. Well, John, uh, I think you've got a very interesting story to tell, and, and I look forward to hearing it. Uh, before we before we get started with that, though, maybe, maybe we can begin with you just kind of telling me a little bit about yourself and your background, what you do. Uh, I'm a technology coordinator for a school district in, in Circleville, Ohio, and Circleville is uh, th- about 35 miles uh, south of Columbus, Ohio, and uh, I've been in that capacity uh, now for eight years. Uh, before that, I was the assistant band director, and uh, uh, with being in that role, you use the technology a lot with writing music and, and doing drill for the marching band, so it was just a natural progression um, for me to move into that role. They needed someone to fill it uh, full-time. Uh, so uh, I applied for the position and, and got it. Uh, prior to uh, me filling that position, I helped out uh, um, in the evening uh, with uh, keeping the computers uh, up and going. Um, at the time, we were just putting in uh, the servers and, and a lot of the workstations. So uh, I took some training and uh, in uh, Microsoft uh, Windows NT server uh, and uh, and put together the servers and installed them in the schools and uh, set up all the workstations, did all the wiring, uh, anything that uh, needed to be done. We did uh, from basically about 5 o'clock in the evening until about 9 or 10 o'clock at night, um, but just about every day. Now, how, how large is the, uh, is the school district? How many students or how many, how many uh, campuses are there? We have uh, over 2,300 students, 2,300 students, uh, six buildings, and um, the square miles uh, of the district is over 200, uh, so um, you know, it's pretty spread out. Uh, the nearest building is uh, six miles away, and the farthest one is 11, and um, so it keeps me pretty busy. We have over 700 workstations, um, nine servers, and we just continue to grow, and, and with the adoption of Linux, uh, we we just continue to grow a lot more. Now, you had mentioned that that sort of prior uh, prior to you moving into this IT position, uh, you were in some other, you know, worked in some other capacities in the school. As far as your knowledge of technology and, and networking and computers and stuff, you know, kind of going back a, a ways, were you just sort of self-taught? Has this sort of been a lifelong interest, or you know, in terms of your background of in computers and in uh, technology, where did you you know where did you start from? Uh, I started uh, basically in my later years of high school, uh, um, my sophomore, junior, senior year. Uh, that was back when the days of when the Commodore VIC-20 came out. Uh, I got one of those. I remember I still had the receipt, actually. Uh, I, think, I think I paid $220 for it. Um, then I bought a Commodore 64. And then my parents bought a, a 286, and then uh, from there just kept getting more and more computer equipment. Um, and uh, then when I got into college, I took some uh, college uh, computer courses. Um, also um, got into using uh, apples uh, a lot with uh, with the music. So uh, I've used uh, a lot of different computers, and, and uh, you know the Macs and uh, uh, IBM. Uh, 
PCATs and and you name it. Uh, I've I've played around with it and just always had an interest in it. When was your first exposure to to Linux or or any kind of Unix Unix type operating system? Do you do you, can you you know can you sort of paint the picture of when of, of when you first discovered Linux or other kinds of free and open source uh, operating systems? Oh sure. Um, being a technology coordinator, I, you know, I like to keep uh, keep up on uh, all of the technology that, is, that comes around and, and is available. Uh, so I have I have looked at Linux uh, for for years. Uh, I got copies of uh, Red Hat and had installed them on computers and just played around with it. Um, had a copy of uh, SUSE um, and, and installed that and, and and played around with that. But like I said, it's just it was just you know getting a, a working knowledge of it. it really wasn't deployed it and actually using it uh, until this past year uh, when we uh, um, had a need for it and uh, so then we looked at uh, all the different uh, uh, Linux operating systems that were out there and and uh, we made a, a choice of uh, Ubuntu well maybe you can describe sort of the the scenario of what of what led to uh, your you know thinking about bringing it into the school I mean was there was there something that that triggered this maybe you can kind of tell that tell that story there Oh yes, we had a a, a teacher, and, and uh, being in a technology coordinator at a school district, uh, you, you have a lot of needs, and um, you try to fulfill those needs that uh, the teachers have. Um, so I had a teacher that came to me and said that he could purchase uh, about twenty computers uh, at a, a very very reduced cost. Uh, the only problem with that is that the uh, uh, computers didn't come with an operating system. And so I told him that we couldn't load Windows on those machines legally uh, and that we'd have to either purchase the license, which would drive the cost even more, or we'd have to look at something else. Um, he had uh, heard of Linspire, and um, and he had uh, done his research and, and saw that there was a, a version of FreeSpire coming out. And so we kind of looked at that a little bit. We had a copy of it, and, and it, it looked pretty good. But uh, I told him, I said, well, I've been hearing a lot about Ubuntu, and, and we should take a look at this and uh, so so we did and we installed uh, the Ubuntu, the Kubuntu, the Edge Ubuntu, and um, just uh, took one computer and installed it and uh, had the students play around with it and and uh, out of all three, the, the students really liked the the Ubuntu version uh, over uh, over the other uh, three. So, was there any specific um, need other than obviously? Uh, I mean, it sounds like this teacher just wanted to bring some additional computers into the classroom was there was there something specific that he was looking for as, as part of his uh, curriculum he had told me that uh, the the things that he like he wants to do in his classroom were to write uh, so he needed a word processor and of course uh, you know open office is, is uh, bundled with uh, with uh, the, the uh, version of Ubuntu um, and also needed to, to use the internet and we were already using Firefox at the time um, because we we think it's more secure and and, and uh, uh, we like to tab browsing, so um, that was before Internet Explorer Seven came out. So basically, he said all we need to do is just be able to write um, and print and and use the internet and uh, maybe even uh, look at a, a typing program. Which now uh, he's installed the uh, text type program and they're doing more of that. Uh, but now school is 
those out. And, and, and obviously, we're not doing that now. But back in the fall, he'll, he'll start out with the uh, the typing and and uh, and the writing. But uh, he's a, he's a, a reading and writing teacher, and he's very into having the students compose right at the computer. He has, uh, um, like I said, twenty twenty two machines in his classroom, and and every student sits at a computer, which is fantastic. That he has a big enough room, and we have it all wired for him so that he can have every student sitting at a computer. How does uh, how does this kind of decision work in your school district? In this in the sense of, you know, uh, uh, who, who is the one who has to look at whether or not there is any volume Microsoft licenses, or uh, does it have to go through administration or go through certain channels? How does it how does it work procedurally? And, and was there any resistance or anything like that? Uh, basically, the, the teachers come to me with uh, with their needs. If they want additional computers, if they want software, um, whatever they want for their classroom, we try to fulfill those needs if we have the funds for it and if we think that it's a good educational uh, uh, program or a good educational value. Um, we don't want to bring anything in that's going to cause uh, security issues or uh, or any licensing issues. We don't want uh, Microsoft come knocking on our door uh, saying that you know, we must sell your licenses. Um, uh, so we we always do things that are you know on the up and up and that we're doing things correctly that we were getting our licenses in order um, so basically it's just where the teachers have their need for uh, we, we would try and fulfill as much as we can are there uh, volume licenses available from Microsoft is that something that the school district has uh, yes, we, we can get uh, Microsoft products at a, a reduced cost. Uh, I believe I haven't uh, I haven't bought Windows licenses in a while, but I think they're about ninety dollars per workstation, which is a, a lot cheaper than one could go to uh, you know a Best Buy or, or, or a place like that and then buy it for you know three hundred four hundred dollars. So we do get uh, um, some a redu- you know the software at reduced cost, and if you do pay, uh, there is a volume license or a, a school uh, campus license that you can purchase as well. Uh, for a school district my size, it would cost around $30,000 uh, to do that. Uh, but with a technology budget of $50,000, uh, it's just not in, in, our, in our budget to do that. So we have to um, look at the free and open source software in order to fulfill our needs. Just out of curiosity, do you happen to know what the volume license is for Microsoft Office? Uh, yes, I do, uh, because we had one school that requested um, the uh, Microsoft Office package. They they, they tried to open Office, and, and they were just so used to the Microsoft Office package that uh, they wanted to have it. So um, it's uh, $60 per workstation. Wow, and that's obviously a whole lot cheaper than the than the going rate of, I don't know what it is, three, four, five hundred dollars somewhere in that range. But right. But uh, even if, but even at sixty dollars or ninety dollars for for Microsoft uh, Windows, obviously spread over hundreds of workstations across many buildings, that adds up pretty quickly, I imagine. Yes, it does, and, and that's why we're always looking for for alternatives to, to save us money and 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 put the money into the hardware, uh, and so that we can get the newer hardware in our in our classrooms, and and get the older hardware out. So it sounds like the introduction of Linux into this one classroom uh, is it is this is it is it just in this one classroom? I mean, are you viewing this as sort of a trial run, or have you uh, started to expand it, or or have other teachers asked about it? Uh, actually, uh, we we had the the one classroom this year, and we used him as a pilot, more uh, or more as a guinea pig, I'd say, and it's just worked out tremendously for us. So uh, we've had the hit 
two classrooms next to him that have uh, seen what he's done. And we had purchased, uh, about a month ago, we purchased uh, 30 computers. And uh, we're fortunate that um, our, our state of Ohio has a uh, state surplus center up in Columbus. And we purchased um, uh, 30 uh, workstations for uh, $75 a piece. And uh, bought, even bought uh, 17-inch monitors, and they were only $20 a piece. So we were able to buy those 30 workstations. And um, our tech students, uh, we have a tech team at our uh, high school. Uh, this year we had six students, and we're looking at expanding that next year. Uh, they loaded up the computers with, uh, with Ubuntu, and they're ready to, uh, to be deployed down at uh, that school now. And we'll have 30 additional on top of the 22 we already have. Um, and then I'm looking at... Um, Probably in August, uh, buying some uh, some more workstations. I'm, I'm meeting with, still meeting with uh, some departments as to how many we want to buy. But we're probably going to look at uh, replacing maybe 50 to, to 70 workstations, uh, additional workstations on top of the 30 and 22 that we already have. Well, that that's really interesting. Uh, the, the 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 second group of 30 that you just mentioned, it sounds like that the total cost of those was about a hundred dollars for the. For the computer plus the monitor, and you know, times thirty—that's what—that's three thousand uh, dollars, which is that right there. I mean, if you if you were to buy thirty newer computers with with you know with Microsoft uh, Windows and Office and everything, I imagine that would pretty much take care of your entire budget. It would have been six hundred dollars per workstation, uh, and that was even going uh, with lesser specs than what we're we're getting with uh, the ones from the state surplus. So, uh, yeah, we were you know saving a lot of money, and we're also uh, getting a, a lot uh, out of uh, what, what we're doing. Now, has this um, has this rollout, if you will, uh, is it just been limited to the classrooms, or have you all started exploring? Uh, Linux, either in in administrative offices or back-end servers? Uh, We're not going to deploy it in the uh, administrative areas. Uh, A lot of our uh, software that we use uh, is... uh, uh, and that in that realm is Windows only, um, so and we won't uh, change them uh, currently. Uh, once we can uh, find software that will run uh, on Linux or, or any uh, anything else, we will we will do that. Uh, as far as the on the back end. Um, I don't have a lot of uh, training in Linux. In fact, I just took a class uh, a couple months ago, a Linux Plus class. So I'm getting more and more comfortable with uh, using the command line and and um, and listening to your podcast really helps out a lot as well. Um, and learning a lot of uh, things that way. So uh, we're going to uh, take uh, a few machines uh, this summer and and. and Try them out as you will, and see uh, if we can um, use them on our back end. And and yeah, I'd really love to uh, to really even reduce costs even more with our servers and and, and uh, use the Linux on the back end to keep things going. Well, it sounds like this this pilot program uh, in your school district uh, in your school district has been a huge success. And, and it also sounds that that um, you know you based on the number of students and the number of buildings. That, from what I gather, this is a smaller school district, and is it is it a rural uh, uh, area? Uh, yes, uh, we are a, a, a rural area. Um, in fact, uh, the school that has adopted uh, the, the Linux uh, workstations uh, is a um, uh, town of Laurelville, um, which is actually it's in a different county. It's in Hawking County. It's just uh, right as you leave Pickway County into uh, Hawking County, um, and uh, it, that school has. Uh, 
uh, about uh, 400 students and um, over 100 computers. In fact, they have just as many computers, if not more, than our high school does. Um, so, so they've really ad- uh, adopted uh, the use of uh, technology and use of computers in their classrooms. So, I guess it'd be you know safe to say that uh, uh, making good use of older older uh, computers that might be otherwise thrown away and uh, some free and open source software has really uh, brought you know pretty modern technology to to a school district that wouldn't necessarily have the budget to do so otherwise exactly and when this teacher came to me last year and said you know i want these newer computers um he says i just want computers at work uh he's um complaining all the time you know he had computers before they were running uh windows 98 and when even some that were running windows 95 i'm embarrassed to say but uh when you don't have a huge uh budget to to work with uh you have, you just you know use what you have and uh if it continues to work and and does the, the job that you need you continue to use it but he was just getting fed up with the spyware and the viruses and and the computers just running slow all the time and and just wouldn't work and um, browsers crashing and he said that you know that, you know I'm about ready to you know stop using them and and uh, he's just been very pleased this year with uh, I haven't been in his classroom hardly at all just to, to go talk to him I haven't worked on any of the computers um, he installed uh, the the software all you know, on his own and he's kept them running and he says you know I don't have to do a thing to him he says I turn them on in the morning they work I shut them down at the end of the day he says I come back in the next day it's the same thing ever again I turn them back on they work he says they just work Actually, that that does bring up one question I was thinking about earlier. This this teacher who came to you uh, with the idea for these computers and the one who had mentioned he had heard about Linspire, does that teacher have any previous Linux experience, or is this someone who had never really, other than Googling about it, I mean, had they ever really used Linux before? No, he had. Yeah, and actually, yes, he he was uh, uh, you know, he was uh, doing some research, you know, you know using Google and and just uh, um, got his hands on a, on a copy of Linspire and and he loaded it up up on a computer just to take a look at it and he showed it to me and and um, I had heard about it but I hadn't really seen it working so we kind of had fun just playing around with it and, and seeing how everything um, just just worked um, and uh, at the time. Um, we heard that uh, the, the Linspire was a $49 package, I believe, at the time, and that they were coming out with a free version. Um, and as we kept, you know, looking at the news and, and paying attention, you know, we kept hearing that it was going to be delayed. And so then we said, well, maybe we should look at an alternative because we don't want to get into July and August and have the hardware but not have any software ready to go. So that's when we did some more re, uh, some more research, and I had uh, turned him on to uh, the Ubuntu, and and um, we looked at the, the, the other versions of it. But uh, uh, the students just really like the, uh, the the look and feel of Ubuntu. And so this this teacher who has who who had no real prior Linux experience, he's the one you said who's had no real trouble installing software and just using the system. I I guess I'm just curious how to hear about how someone who has never used Linux before and is instantly thrown into, you know, using it almost on a daily basis when they're at work and having to do things like install software and, and, you know, make changes and just do things that you normally do, how he's taken to it. It sounds like he's taken to it really well. Oh, yes, he has. In fact, uh, he was um, uh, one of our our building tech people where – at the time, at one time we had building technology coordinators where I would go in to the building and uh, 
be there for the day to work on their their system. So that would be my go-to person. I go to him and say, okay, what do we need to what do I need to do today? Um, what's broken? What do I need to fix? Um, you know, and he does. Uh, at the time, he did troubleshoot a lot of problems. He would go around restarting a lot of computers, and and uh, of course, this this uh, uh, the building that he works in is actually there's four buildings on the campus. So, just getting around from from building to building is, is uh, quite a, a task. So, um, uh, then when uh, we had some financial difficulty in our district, they they got rid of the uh, building supplementals uh, for this position. Position. So, uh, he quit doing the work and basically just kept his his uh, his room going and sometimes he'd go out to his neighboring uh, teachers and help them out but um, uh, so he you know, he's got a very strong background in computers so um, he knew that you know when uh, we made the decision to to get the computers and and, and install them that uh, he might you know be setting them up himself I told him I'd try and get out to help him out but um, at the very beginning of the year is very very busy um, we shut everything down over the summer and, and unplug everything because of uh, the um, storms and everything that are prevalent in Ohio. Um, in fact, we just had at the same school we had it take out uh, our two main switches um, this past week. So um, we like to shut everything down and, and keep everything down over the summer. So going out at the beginning of the year is, is very difficult for me to to get everything up and running. It usually takes uh, a few weeks, and by the time I got to his classroom, he'd already had. The software he just burned five CDs and just went around and installed uh, installed on every you know, computer, set up the printing, and and he was ready to go. Well, that really is that really is neat. That's a very neat story, and and uh, I just I you know thank you for taking the taking the time to to stop by and, and and share it with me. Is there anything else that you that you wanted to mention or talk about before we wrap up? Uh, no, I don't. I, I'm just uh, real glad for this opportunity, and, and thank you for having me. Sure. Well, thank you very much, John. Hey, Chess, this is Richard from Livingston, California, and I had a quick listener tip for you. I wanted to tell you about one of the neat features I found on my router. I have a Linksys WRT54G running the XWRT firmware, and in the web F interface, there's an option to assign IP addresses based on your metas. So it's a real easy way to get a static IP without having to edit any files. Thanks. That's a great tip. I It cut out there right when he was sort of speaking the, the most important part. I think what he's talking about is sending a static IP through DHCP based on the MAC address of the clients connecting. And he's right. That is a nice way to, to set a static IP uh, so those you know never change, but then you don't actually have to make any changes uh, on the client end. So Pretty cool tip. Thanks very much. Let's check out some listener feedback. Hey, Chess. This is Mark Vandenberg from South Bend, Indiana. I just uh, wanted to let you know I had been a listener of your podcast probably from early on. I I remember you read one of my uh, emails early on. When I found you in uh, uh, the Linux uh, magazine that I was getting online at the time, and I happened to just, um, I, I think I just found your podcast, and I, maybe I had just written you, and then you were in the magazine because you had had, you had sent a letter into it or something like that. This was early on 
when you first started the podcast. But I, uh, I, I've been listening to your podcast again. The reason I say again is because I've, it was one of these things I was into at the time. And I, I've kept downloading your podcast, but I haven't listened to a whole bunch of episodes here uh, lately. But I've, I've gotten back into playing with Linux again uh, due to VirtualBox. And so I've spent probably the last 17 days doing a lot of playing around in VirtualBox I'm not a, a Linux user altogether. I'm actually running Vista, but I'm running VirtualBox. I'm running all, all about 12 different distributions right now. Within that, it works just fine. I just wanted to let you know that uh, tonight uh, on the Mike Tech Show, I've sent in a, a comment to him, and he's going to be using that in his in his podcast about VirtualBox and the distributions I'm using, why I'm doing it. But I also mention. Uh, your podcast as being one that I listen to, you know, to get information and stuff from. Uh, I also wanted to, since I haven't been to your your website in a long time, I happen to show up now and to see how many uh, episodes you have now, you know, 70 episodes or so now. Uh, I just want to let you know of a, of a WordPress plugin that it, that I find very useful for, for my podcast, and that is a, a drop-down archive plugin. It's really nice because the, the standard way that WordPress uses archives, I really don't like it because it really makes it hard for listeners of the podcast or anybody that comes to the website to find past issues, and especially since you have a podcast that has good titles. So if somebody is looking for something, they can, you know, good titles for the podcast episodes, they can find it by just the heading. The same with mine. So what this archive drop-down menu does is just you can get rid of that archive tab and it puts in the center of your page at the top, it'll put down a little drop-down menu so people can just click that, drag down, find the episode they want, click on it, and it brings it up that way. I really like it. It's probably one of the best WordPress plugins i found. I really, really like that plugin quite a bit. So I'm going to send you the link for it. Maybe you might want to consider take a look at it. It's really neat. Hey, I really enjoy your podcast, and uh, keep up the good work. Mark, well, thank you so much, and uh, and welcome to all the listeners of the Mike Tech Show. Uh, that actually, uh, that episode had come out a few days ago, and uh, I could tell that there were a lot of people coming over from that site. And I think um, Mike had mentioned uh, this uh, show in an earlier episode as well. So, uh, but Mark, thanks so much for that audio comment and feedback. It's great stuff. Um, as far as the WordPress plugin for the archives, I'll take a look at that. I really like the extended live archives plugin that is used on the Linux reality site and the search field, the search function is very good as well at finding old episodes, but I agree that it is helpful to have maybe a, a single list, whether it's a drop down box or a single page where everything is listed. That is easier to go back. I, I agree with you there. So, um, I am going to take another look at it now that we've gotten up to, uh, over 70 episodes, it would be helpful to find a, a, you know an easier way to go back and, and find old episodes. So um, thanks so much, and I, I appreciate the feedback, and I'm, I'm glad you're still listening and uh, that you're enjoying VirtualBox. That's a great uh, virtual machine. I've been using it as well, and it's been working really well. So thanks so much. Howdy, Chess. In episode 67 or 68, one of the listeners asked you to try and increase the volume of your podcasts. If I remember correctly, you said you tried to record your podcast in one pass and use Audacity to do a little mastering. Since I'm an Audacity user also, I thought I would let you know how I've handled that type of volume problem. 
Normally, a limiter is used to prevent clipping in a recording, but it can also be used to compress the dynamic range of a recording by intentionally raising the volume of the recording so that the soft parts of the recording are easier to hear. The loud parts that pass the limiting threshold then have their volume pulled down at 2 to 1 to keep them from clipping, which causes the entire recording to have a compressed dynamic range. I had the best results using the fast look-ahead limiter LADSPA plugin, LADSPA 1913. It's part of a package of plugins at plugin.org.uk. The process I normally go through is to select the track I want and find out how much amplification is needed to bring it to zero decibels by selecting Effect Amplify and noting how much amplification is suggested. Then I cancel out of amplification, select the track again, and select Effect Fast Look Ahead Limiter. In the fast look-ahead limiter, I set the input gain to the amount of amplification for 0 decibels plus 6 decibels. For example, if it needed 4 decibels of amplification to get to 0, I would set the input gain to 10 decibels. I set the limit at minus 1 decibel. There are usually one or two spots where the fast look-ahead limiter lets the signal go over the limit, so I set it at minus 1 decibel instead of 0 decibels so that I don't get any clipping indicators. The release time I leave at the default and after that I just click OK. Jay, that was really great. I, I, I wanted to play that because I've had a lot of people ask me tips on using Audacity and I'm not very good with Audacity. And I haven't tried what you did. I, I For a long time I was using Audacity to do the compression and the normalization stuff. I still do the editing in Audacity. I record straight onto a little recorder, you know, a separate box, a separate little device. And then I pull that off and edit the whole thing in audacity, but I was never able to find a good way to, to, to do the normalization and the compression and all that stuff to make it sound good. So the last, I don't know, half dozen episodes or so I've been using, uh, the levelator, which is a tool provided by the guys from it conversations. I think a lot of other podcasts use it as well. It's, uh, it's been working pretty well, I think. And so I'm going to, te- I'm going to continue testing that, but I'm also going to test out your tips. And I wanted to play this just in case other people listening had some questions or, or wanted to figure out how to do it. So uh, that's really great stuff. Thanks so much for sending that in, Jay. Here's an email from Alec. Uh, Alec says, hey, Chess, I'm a 15-year-old open source software developer. I have three of my own open source projects. Wow, that's <laughs> he's 15 years old and he's already got three open source projects. Uh, I just listened to the episode on Archlytics and just wanted to say that I've been an Arch user for a couple months now, and it has become my distro of choice since then. I love it because I get all the latest software since I'm a developer and need all the latest libraries and whatnot, and because I got easy support for using XFS for my root directory, as I prefer it over EXT3 for performance reasons, and I just love it. Arch is just awesome from Alec. Alec, that's great email. Thanks so much. Yeah, Arch is very cool. It's. I heard also Dan Dennity from, he's the developer of Kino. I remember him a long time ago saying, I think it was on the Linux Link Tech Show, that he also uses Arch for that same reason, because as a developer, it's very easy for him to pull down all the latest and greatest. Here's an email from Chad. Chad says, hey, Chess, you know the Transformers movie that just came out, right? What you probably didn't know is that it was made using Linux. That's right. DreamWorks uses Linux to do their animated movies. I ran across an article about it while using StumbleUpon. Unfortunately, I didn't think to save the article. Then again, isn't that what Google is for? Love your show. Keep up the good work. And I hope to meet you at Ohio Linux Fest from Chad. Yeah, Chad, I think I had seen that. That's pretty cool. I know there's a lot of movies that, that use uh, Linux servers to do all the rendering. 
And uh, that's that's pretty cool. Here's an email from Mohammed, sort of a tech support email. And I wanted to read this because I've had a few other people ask me about this. Uh, Mohammed says, hi, I used to be an interested listener of yours from the early episodes. Uh, I've tried many times to get into Linux. However, I can never find simple instructions to fix my widescreen resolution issue. I've Googled it many times, and the terminology used in the forums confuses me. I hope you can answer this question for me in a simple way. I just installed Ubuntu 7.04 running on my Alienware and NVIDIA graphics card. I have a 23-inch Apple display. Every time I reinstall a new version of Ubuntu, hoping that the default would recognize my monitor's aspect ratio, it seems like they ignore the issue. I know the people behind Ubuntu are doing great work, but this seems like such a non-issue to me, especially on the Windows side. I just bought Vista. I hate it. It is terrible. I would love to be a switcher, but please bear with my ignorance. I don't know. I don't understand much of the great but somewhat difficult open source alternative. Thank you for your consideration. Well, Mohammed, what you're looking for is a tool called 915 Resolution. It's a command line tool that patches the video BIOS. And in Ubuntu, I had to do this on my Dell laptop, uh, which is a widescreen laptop. And once I installed 915 Resolution, I feel like it did it all automatically. Uh, it, it made the changes and it reconfigured XORG and stuff like that. I don't remember having to do anything manually, but it's been a while since I've installed it. But basically 915 resolution, all one word. If you put that into the Ubuntu forms or the Ubuntu wiki, I think you'll see a lot of documentation on how to, on how to configure it. If it doesn't do it automatically, basically all that it does is it tricks the video BIOS into thinking that one of the available video modes is your widescreen mode. Because it could be that the video BIOS is 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 not very well made, and incorrectly incorrectly reports the different resolutions that are available. So it's a way to temporarily it's, it doesn't make any permanent changes whatsoever. This is just a software setting. Uh, temporarily makes a change to allow the video BIOS to recognize the proper resolution, and then it works. And it, it used to be called 855 resolution, and I've been using that for years on my Dell laptop with Slackware and other distros. And now it's 915 resolution. I think that's because I think it was originally based on the uh, Intel chipsets, the 855s, and now I guess it's the 915 plus Intel cards. But I think it it works for other video cards as well. So uh, good luck with that, Mohammed. Here's an email. It's kind of a funny email from Hugh. See if you can spot uh, where he's going with this. <laughs> Let's see here. i got to pull it up. Okay, here it is. Hugh says, hey, Chess, this is Hugh from your home state of North Carolina in the U.S., I work in an office where for about 10 years we have used Linux or Unix, yet it wasn't my turn until Linux reality to make my own game. I have not been bored once from the first podcast all the way up to the 70th. Wow. You can really take a complex idea, break it down into understandable moves without making me feel like a pawn. (laughs) This has allowed me to take more control of my business. The piece of the show that has been the most helpful were episodes 25, 26 on windows networking. I stayed up all night reorganizing our office around the expanded network afforded by Linux. The most interesting show was the NSLU2. I loved it in episode 70 when naming your systems you forgot your slug. In software, the system that runs so well it becomes transparent to the user is king. What operating system does your microwave run on? Linux is stable and becoming much simpler to use, which is just now reaching a level where the average computer user can use it with a bit of effort. Your show has inspired me to begin collecting older salvage laptops, installing Ubuntu on them, I then provide them to underprivileged students at the local college at no charge. They aren't deep blue, but they certainly jumpstart a deserving student. I've already provided two this spring. This is really great. So, Chess, thanks to you and your wife, who I can tell is a great helpmate for your educational, entertaining, 
just plain really cool podcast. I'm glad I checked it out. Your talent is greatly appreciated here in North Carolina and around the world. So checkmate from another fan. Great job. Great job, Hugh. Yeah, Hugh, I liked all those references to the game of chess. Uh, that's pretty funny. And uh, that's a very nice email. As I think I've said before, my name, my nickname, my actual name is Charles, but my nickname is Chess. It has nothing to do with the game. I do I have played it, and I'm terrible at it. I'm not. So anyway, it was just a nickname given to me by my parents when I was born. So anyway, here is an email from Alistair. Alistair says, hi, Chess. I've been interested in tinkering with Linux for ages, and now I have a spare PC. I've got my own brand new Ubuntu installation. I just want to say that I've just discovered and started listening to the podcast, and it's really answering a lot of questions that I had formulating. Things like the mysteries of the Linux file system, possibly issues that had kept me from Linux in the past. I'm listening in order and only up to show 15 now, but wanted to give you my feedback as to what a great thing you're doing. Keep up the fantastic words or work regards Alistair. Thank you, Alistair. It's amazing the number of people I get emails from who are saying they are just now discovering the podcast and starting at the beginning. And man, that's a, that's a lot of listening, <laughs> but I do the same thing. I've, I find new podcasts and uh, you know, they're into episode 100 and, and I try to catch up. It, it's pretty tough. Okay, here's one from Ben. Uh, ben says, um, howdy from Austin, Texas. I first would like to congratulate, congratulate you on a superior show. I'm a rabid consumer of podcasts, and the quality and care you put into your show really stands out. I've been using Linux since 2003 and have moved past the newbie status, but I love to learn new tips and tricks. You really deliver. I listen to your Arch Linux show, and I'm looking forward to trying it out. I've installed Gen 2, Slack, and Debian on other boxes, and I'm not uh, taunted or by complicated or manual installs. But this brings me to my main point. I disagree with the concept of an advanced Linux. You are not the first to use this term, and I have used it at various points, but it would be nice to see it deprecated in favor of something more accurate, like a DIY Linux or custom Linux. Advanced Linux implies that there are second-class or functionally inferior distributions, and that is just not true. Um, he goes on to say you know, that basically... Uh, uh, discussions on so-called advanced Linux distros led me to believe that the more nuts and bolts distros were somehow better than the Fedora, Mandrake, or Ubuntu Linuxes that are supposedly for beginners. It's just not true. Thanks for all the good work, and I look forward to your future shows. Well, um, Ben, that's a good point, and you're right, and I certainly didn't mean it that way. I think of advanced Linux just in terms of a Linux that requires some advanced knowledge, uh, you know, some some additional knowledge. They're not typically, you know, install and forget like Ubuntu is. Ubuntu does a great job with it, but you're right. I mean, all the distributions are essentially really the same or almost the same under the hood when you really get down to it. Um, uh, people do, you know, you can, you know, have the most advanced user using Ubuntu uh, all day long. In fact, I hear developers who have been developing for, you know, 10 plus years that are now using Ubuntu. So, uh, but I, I hear what you're saying. And, you know, I certainly didn't mean it like that, but um, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, uh, custom Linux is, is maybe a better descri de description or something along those lines. So here's one from Paul last email for this week. Paul says, Hey Chess, this is Paul from Houston. And I enjoy the podcast. As you mentioned during your home server series, security is an important issue with servers. Part of that means staying up to date with the latest patches. But to do that, you have to know when updates are available. Servers are often headless and GUI-less, so you don't see notifications pop up like you might with a desktop system. Additionally, many ISPs block their users from running their own mail servers, so tools such as cronapt, which sends email notification, don't always work. I've come up with a solution that uses cron, a shell script, apt, curl, and the Twitter web service to provide automated notifications of what updates are available. You can then subscribe to those notifications via RSS. 
or even use a service such as FeedBurner or Yahoo Alerts to get email notification from the feed. I've been doing this with my server for a few days now, and it's very handy. And he gives me a link that I'll put in the show notes. That's pretty interesting. I really don't know much about Twitter. I've heard other people talk about it. I don't use it. I don't really get into that kind of stuff. But um, I took a look at, that, at his post about this, and it looks pretty cool. I could see how that would be helpful. Um, you know, I guess my only concern would be, you know, just making sure that, that you actually do get it. I mean, for me, email is my primary, uh, I don't know, you know, I mean, I, I, I subscribe to a lot of feeds, but email is what I get all the time. So I always subscribe to the email notifications for the different distributions I use for security updates and stuff like that, or mailing lists, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but I can see this as being a, a handy um, alternative as well. So uh, thanks for that heads up, Paul. That's pretty cool stuff. So uh, thanks everybody else for all the emails. I got a really a whole lot this week and um, I apologize if I didn't get to it, but please do keep the emails coming and the voicemails. I really enjoy getting that uh, and it's great feedback. So thanks again. And it's time to wrap it up for this week. Okay, well, let's see. First of all, I'd like to thank John for coming on the show. I really enjoyed that interview, and uh, I still just find that topic very, very interesting. I hope to get into it some more with some other folks. I just think Linux in schools is is cool, and it's interesting because, it, you know, admittedly, there's a lot of challenges there. And so I find it fascinating to hear about the success stories where it does work and people are, are able to overcome those challenges, but also where people are not able to overcome those challenges, where, you know, to find out where Linux is is uh, you know insufficient where it doesn't meet the needs because I think that's important for us to you know we can talk about all the great things Linux does and and how great it is and how you know useful it is but we also have to examine the areas where we fall short and I think that's why it's important to have these kinds of discussions so thanks so much John and thanks to everybody else again for all your email and all your feedback uh, you can send me email and uh, audio attachments as you know for voicemail to linuxreality at gmail.com. You can also use the uh, listener hotlines. Just check out linuxreality.com slash contact for all that information. We have the Linux Reality forums, linuxreality.com slash forums, and the IRC channel. It's hash linuxreality on irc.freenode.net. Uh, and as I said before, I'm going to be off next week, but I'll be back the following week. Uh, probably have a few episodes after that, and then I'll probably be off again for at least one week while I go uh, through a painting renovation job here in my office slash studio. Not much of a studio. It's really more of a, a junkyard <laughs> more than anything else. Uh, so anyway, I hope you all have a great week and a great weekend and take care. I'll catch you all in two weeks. This has been episode 71 of Linux Reality. See you later. Bye-bye.